This is APCO Forum, powered by APCO Worldwide, an advisory and advocacy communications firm. Now, here's your host, John Deftarius. Hello and welcome to APCO Forum, timely conversations catalyzing progress on the global issues. I'm John Deftarius of APCO Worldwide. We have been busy tracking the progress of the United Nations General Assembly, the 76th session, of course, focusing on climate ahead of the talks of COP26, the first week of November uh, in Glasgow. How much can we set forward from the UNGA and then drive it home uh, in the weeks that follow? We're bringing in guests for the APCO Forum, internal experts within the organization and also experts from the outside as well. Let me welcome in Heather McGeary. She's the Global Lead of Climate and Sustainability at APCO. Uh, it's nice to have you within the forum. Uh, first off, Heather, you know, it's almost been, I think, what, a, a made-for-TV movie, if you will. You've seen the calamities, you know, fires and flooding and uh, horrible droughts, uh, the post-pandemic uh, shortages of food, supply chains being locked up. You would think that collectively would drive home a very solid COP26 agreement. What are we expecting? Thanks, John. Um, you know, we really do collectively have a global goal to get to net zero by 2050 or sooner if we have a chance of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. And what that means in the more immediate future is that we absolutely must have emissions by 2030 across the world economy. And so as we look forward to what's going to happen at COP26 um, and just having experienced UNGA, we also have um, another stop along the way, which is the G20, where we're also expecting some um, some interesting outcomes. So we know that um, we have to deliver more than the 110 countries that have already um, committed to their nationally determined contributions and increasing their levels of ambition there. We're looking for three things. And the first thing is for countries to increase their nationally determined contributions. We know that we need to look for what national policies are going to look like for countries that have submitted, like the US, the UK, the EU. And so we want to see coal phase out, an upgrade to infrastructure grids, um, commitment to 100% renewable energy. And in transport, what that looks like is um, leaving the internal combustion engine behind, transitioning to electric vehicles, increasing sustainable aviation fuel purchases, um, and increasing what our financial mechanisms look like for um, mitigating climate change. And then the second thing is that we want to see a real financial commitment for funding adaptation and resilience. Right now, a lot of the G7 countries have made a verbal commitment through the, um, through the Build Back Better World Pledge, um, where they're going to pledge $100 billion annually through 2025 to increase um, funding to uh, some of the most vulnerable countries. What we're looking to see is very specific commitments on that. And then the third thing that we are looking for is signals that we're building towards a nature-positive economy so that we can reverse nature loss. Um, I think what we're seeing right now, Swiss Re came out with a report indicating that biodiversity loss costs about $33 trillion a year, um, and that when you look at that over the next 30 years, it could be as much as a 10% global loss in GDP. And um, our current investment in biodiversity is only $133 billion, and it needs to look more like $4 trillion. So we need to really look at um, how to up those investments in biodiversity and nature as well. 
Okay, thanks very much for that, Heather. That's a really good umbrella for our conversation. Let's bring in uh, Helen Clarkson, the CEO of the uh, Climate Group, and let's pick up on the uh, framework, if you will, Helen, that uh, Heather put forward. Are, are you confident at this stage uh, that we'll have something that's substantive when it comes to a COP26 agreement, though? I, you see this wrangling, uh, wrestling by China, India, Saudi Arabia, of course, the number one uh, oil exporter in the world. Can this all come together when it's all said and done? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of focus often on the week or two of the COP. Uh, those are moments in time, but the UNFCCC process is a long-term process. It rolls for years, and these are, these are important moments. There's important talks that happen in the run-up to COP, and that's part of the role of the presidency is to go out and do the diplomacy and get agreements. And there are certainly years like this one, and we're going to see this every five years, when there's real attention on the ratchet process, which is about company, uh, countries upping their commitments under the Paris Agreement. So it's naturally nationally determined contributions was what each country says it can do. And so that's why there's such a focus on this particular moment on what countries are going to bring. Um, but it's, it's a long process and we're seeing the diplomacy going on uh, over the course for the UK. It's been over two years because COP was delayed due to the pandemic and definitely seeing some steps forward. It's great that you know within that time, the US has come back in, um, upped its commitment. And that sets, uh, sets the scene then for a country like China, and there's a lot going on bilaterally between the US and China. So there's a lot that's going on. I think it's right to keep that pressure on the momentum towards Glasgow. Um, but we're seeing a lot of progress in general. Uh, Heather, how do we ensure equity here? Because climate change seems to be much more visible than it's been uh, ever. As a matter of fact, it's uh, this lead up to COP26 with the calamities that we've witnessed here. Can we have equity as part of the equation of the negotiations? I think it's a real struggle and, you know, particularly around some of the biodiversity loss and using nature as a carbon sink. Um, indigenous communities are really not um, often left behind and really left out of the conversation. And, you know, they represent about 5% of the population and also steward about 80% of our biodiversity globally. And so bringing indigenous communities into the conversation as part of the policymaking process is, is just so urgently needed. Um, and then also just to reiterate, I think that ensuring that the adaptation funds are filled and committed to and distributed right away. I think we know that we cannot delay in this process any longer. Um, I was just reading recently that uh, in a World Bank report that there's about 200 million people who will be displaced due to climate change impacts in the next um, 30 years or so. And, you know, that's just with our current estimates if we if we don't take action. And so it's urgent that we have to have um, funds provided so that so that some of those impacts can be mitigated. I want to go back to something Heather brought up in her opening comments, and that here's uh, closing the gap between the developed and the developing countries in this uh, green fund, if you will, of $100 billion a year. Uh, will that be delivered upon, and will that make the difference? Because you hear the developing countries saying, why are we sacrificing in the near to medium term? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different things. Um, in that question. So one of them is about responsibility and historic emissions, and that has been a real sticking point in the talks over the years. 
Um, and I think one of the breakthroughs in Paris was getting to this idea of nationally determined contributions and getting each country to look at its emissions and what it can do and trying to get out of this blame game. We're seeing some of that coming back. And then the, the, the funding is another part of that question. And it's, it's really hard to say because we see all these commitments, um, but then what are those commitments are actually delivered? And I think overall, you know, what we need to think about is commitments are absolutely critical. We need these 2030, we need 2050 commitments, but we need action today on delivering on those, whether it's finance, whether it's uh, national countries, you know, delivering policies that will get them to hit their NDCs, whether it's businesses or other parts of society. So I think overall, we need to continue to push hard on these long-term commitments, but we also need to be demanding much more on action today. Heather, I'd like to follow up on this uh, with you. Uh, are you confident here that we don't go on multiple paths to the energy transition, for example, with some of the oil uh, exporters saying like, well, we can do this later. Uh, the developing countries saying we can use coal for longer. What sort of level of concern do you have about that? Um, well, I think that we're seeing that fossil fuels are coming back with a vengeance as the economy rebounds and that the transition um, is still uh, in process and um, we have not abandoned um, hydrocarbons. And um, in fact, I just was reading also that 2022 is expected to exceed 2019 pre-pandemic levels um, for fossil fuel demand. Um, and I think that a couple of things have happened where we know that renewables in many instances are at parity or can be cheaper than, um, than hydrocarbons. And so making sure that we're phasing out um, as much as possible and also providing appropriate transition fuels and intermittent electricity power for energy purposes is quite important as well. Um, and I think overall there's been a strong commitment to phasing out coal in, in part um, you know, because financially it doesn't make sense anymore and that's a, a, an important indicator and motivator for um, transitioning away from these things. You know, both of you have worked extensively with uh, corporations uh, on this very issue right now. Helen, do you think that it's going to be the leading corporations of the world that will drive this because consumers are saying we need to take action and that this will influence governments who are often worried about election cycles? Yeah, we look, work a lot with uh, big businesses to create um, big demand signals. So two of our biggest campaigns at the Climate Group are RE100, which is a commitment to 100% renewable electricity, and EV100, which is a commitment to 100% electric vehicles in the corporate fleet. And I think EV100 gives a really good example of how this transition can work and the role of corporates in that. So corporates, if you look at a market like the UK and lots of Europe, over 60% of new vehicles purchased in a year are purchased by companies for their corporate fleet. They drive those vehicles for a number of years, actually longer for EVs than uh, combustion engines because they just last better. But they'll drive them for a number of years and then they'll move into the second-hand market. So by focusing on companies, you get them to shift their fleets. That sends a really clear signal as well to governments that they can bring forward the end date for the combustion engine because the businesses are going to support that. They're not going to turn around and, and push back on the government. So then you've got... The demand side working with the policymakers and that puts pressures on the manufacturers and when we talk to companies and say what's stopping you go 100% tomorrow one of the biggest reasons is availability of vehicles so we need that pressure on the supply side so you get the, the, these kind of clear signals between demand supply policymakers 
that then works to bring the price down and you get a virtuous circle. So that's how it works in the, in the electric vehicle sector and we're looking to take that model to other markets. As Heather already mentioned, the you know, price of renewables has come down hugely and the economic sense is there now to build uh, renewable energy and really get this up to the scale that we need. You know, the other thing I wanted to raise with the both of you is uh, environmental social governance, uh, ESG. It seemed like a, a moniker that nobody paid attention to. But what has shifted profoundly, particularly over the last 12 to 18 months, is that in Wall Street or in the city of London, uh, we have investors suggesting if your credentials on climate change are not solid, we don't invest in you as a corporation. And I'm not just speaking about energy companies as well. Is this going to be a real driver from the private sector in your view, Heather? It's the real deal in terms of reporting or not? Yeah, I think that there are many different ways that companies can report right now, um, different reporting mechanisms, different accounting mechanisms. And so um, as we coalesce behind a, one set of those or um, or a more uh, aligned set of those, I think we'll start to see more and this become uh, more and more important for um, investing purposes. And, you know, at the G7, this summer, the climate finance ministers did indicate that they strongly recommended that we use the TCFD um, as a way to start to disclose climate risk um, for companies. And so the more that we're aligning and getting behind that and being able to use a consistent approach so that we can make appropriate comparisons of companies within sectors and across sectors, the more effective the, the ESG metrics can be. Uh, Helen, you're not crazy about reporting uh, yourself because it's not uniform globally. Is that your biggest concern right now? Uh, and it's like uh, ticking a box for a company and this doesn't indicate real action uh, on its own? It's less that, actually, than I don't like the idea that you've got the company here and then environment, society and governance over here. They're one thing. And I think that one of the problems with the kind of ESG framing is sort of saying, look, your business does this and then over here we'll do a bit of reporting about whether that's good or bad. As we go towards halving emissions this decade, every decision we take needs to have the climate at the centre. You can't have a business and then have a climate bit of it. It's all climate. And I think that it's very important to do the reporting, um, but it needs to be baked into the annual reporting cycle. And the TCFD, which Heather mentioned, that's all about really reporting climate right there in your financial statements, advising companies on how to do that. And that's what we need to see. And I think we need to break down this kind of division of, of people. Some people are doing climate and some people are doing business. It's one thing. And Heather, I'd like to get your final thoughts here on how we should tackle both uh, nature and the climate crisis at the same time. I'm just not getting the sense of urgency that I'm hearing uh, from the public in government at this stage. I don't see, sense uh, the need to move really quickly or is this the reality of trying to get this uh, global coalition together? Yeah, I think that the, what's happening right now is we're seeing more of the impacts from climate, from extreme weather, from wildfires, and that we're, what the, we're going to start seeing next, and more obviously, is this lo loss of biodiversity. Even though it's happening already, it's happening uh, perhaps more quietly or in places that we aren't um, living or experiencing. Um, and just one final note also on how uh, corporates can really participate in this process, which is... Um, I think there has tended to be a really linear approach to tracking emissions, reducing emissions internally, and then offsetting the rest. And um, I think we're in an urgent time period right now where 
companies and and all and governments need to do all of the above, right? So as you're figuring out what your emissions are and as you're reducing internally and doing everything you can, also figure out how you can protect forests um, and biodiversity and making those types of investments for the long term, not just for your climate needs, but also for um, our global needs around biodiversity. That's a good point to finish our, our discussion here on COP26. Heather McGeary of APCO and Helen Clarkson of the Climate Group. Uh, thank you for your participation in this. Now you understand why we have the APCO Forum. It's to take a deeper understanding of the key issues that are out there today and help organizations become catalysts for progress and show leadership on the issues that uh, matter today. You can, of course, uh, watch this space for further episodes of the APCO Forum or follow us on our social media channels at APCO Worldwide. And you can sign up for the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. I'm John Defterius. Thanks for joining us.